Have we got a show for you? I've no idea what we'll do. Welcome, my friends, to this charming tableau. Have we got a show for you? Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. My name is Strangely. This is the podcast. And if you're listening to it, that makes you one of the friends. Also, speaking of friends, I have the very first guest of the Return Strangely and Friends, the podcast. My friend Heather Denise Wilson is on, and I'll be chatting with her in a little bit. But uh, yeah, it's been... It's been an interesting week for me. I, I finally left LA. I'm now recording this from inside the closet at a friend of mine's house here in Fresno, California, which is one of my favorite places in the world. Like, I, I'm sorry, I love Fresno. You know, people will ask me where I'm headed and I'll be like, oh, I'm going to Fresno. And they'll be like, why? And honestly, I think it's because Fresno is kind of lame, like in terms of a city, like it doesn't have like a beautiful geographic feature, it doesn't have mountains or rivers or anything like that. It's just a city that exists because the railroad companies got together, found the exact geographic center of California, and then said, here, we'll build a city here. And so as a result of Fresno not kind of having like a built-in culture that came up organically like you know some towns are logging towns or mining towns or fishing towns or something like that fresno kind of got to invent itself and so there's a lot of just really charming strange interesting things going on here and i i love it i i come here every march for the rogue festival and uh i just i i always have to stop in and and visit some friends so it's it's really exciting to be here uh yeah I I I I oh uh, I'll comment on some current event uh thing uh I just saw the trailer for Sweet Tooth this morning based on the comic book by Jeff Lemire who is I think he's my favorite currently writing comic book artist he is just fantastic uh, check check him out he's a wonderful writer his art is really bleak but somehow beautiful as well uh yeah sweet tooth is a really really lovely comic book with a lot of stuff kind of about ideas like adoption and found family and you know the the kind of stuff i seem to really like so check that out that's just a little bonus recommendation but anyway enough about current events let's start the show strangely recommends in 200 words or less including these 11. Who imposed this rule? Letter Kenny. It's tempting to dismiss this show as a charming little comedy and leave it at that. Until you realize that its unassuming face hides some of the smartest writing currently accessible via the streaming services of the internet. Letter Kenny follows the various small town Canadians of Letter Kenny as they interact with one another. The majority of the show's runtime is devoted to long, rambling conversations in which people debate answers to questions without resorting to their cell phones. This may seem like a simple setup, but it is equal parts hysterically funny, wildly erudite, and nostalgically wholesome. In a media landscape full of throwback shows obsessed with the aesthetics of earlier times, Letterkenny gets something deeply right. What many of us are nostalgic for is not the social mores of the past or the prices, it is more the basic feeling that people used to just talk to each other. Whether discussing the invention of a sea for ants, 
The pitfalls of social media or the latest Ag Hall Management Board drama, the citizens of Letterkenny have a lot to say, and somehow that tickles me pink. Pitter-patter, best get at her. Here's what I've been reading. I just finished a book called Team of Teams by General Stanley McChrystal, retired. Uh, I I know it seems like not maybe the kind of book that I would be reading, but uh, it was really good. McChrystal tells the story of how he got sent to command the U.S. Special Forces Combined Task Force in Iraq back in 2003, and had to really radically redesign their command structure and sort of the way that they issue orders and make choices because they were fighting a new kind of war that had new challenges. The book was actually recommended to me by a friend of mine who works for the Nestle Corporation. She helps their smaller teams within Nestle become more efficient in working with each other. And she recommended this book to me because I was expressing interest in things like personal efficiency from reading books like Cal Newport's Deep Work. Uh, and it's really, really a fascinating read. I, I, I don't know who I would recommend it to, but if you are in charge of any group of people and you're trying to get them all to move in the same direction, this is a great book. And it definitely is something that sort of pushed me outside of my normal comfort zone in terms of my reading. So I'm always looking for stuff like that. And, uh, you know, weird lateral move reading stuff is really interesting. Uh, probably my favorite part of the book is that McChrystal made up a fake country called Krasnovia and then has the U.S. Army have to fight it at different points, and it's really, really fascinating. So, uh, yeah, that's the thing that I read. Um, I need some more time to digest that, but, you know, that's what I've been reading. I'm so excited about my chat with Heather on this week's episode. Heather is a good friend of mine. She's married to my friend Grant, and she's one of those people who is just delightful to talk to, very interesting to talk to, and just the sweetest person. We recorded this a couple months ago while I was staying at Heather and Grant's house while Grant and I were doing a live stream show for the Fresno Rogue Festival. So it all kind of comes together. Fresno, Rogue, Heather, Grant. Grant's the one who invited me to come down and check out the Fresno Rogue Festival like five years ago. So it's all like one big synergy thing. Anyway, this is my chat with my friend Heather. I'm sitting here in my brand new van with my first van podcast guest, Heather Denise Wilson. Heather, welcome to Strangely Friends, the podcast. Thank you. There's two reasons I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. One is your partner is sort of a partner of mine in yeah, that uh, he is my producer often on a lot of the fringe shows I do. Uh, so we should talk about that. But also, we have the same major. Oh my goodness. So we're like, if we were at the same school, we would probably be friends or or enemies. Or at least know each other. Right. Uh, so, so uh, yeah, those are, the, those are the kind of the two things I wanted to talk to you about. So let's talk about the uh, the shared partner thing first. Because sure. I know you through your husband, Grant, who is a fringe producer. I mean, he jumped. He jumped? Uh, he jumped into it. I didn't throw him. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> just say like I I stood by and watched him jump and said I support you jumping. I'm right, just, I right, didn't throw right. him. Well, he sort of landed. He landed feet. I feet first. 
He landed sw- swimmingly yes. in the fringe world, and he produces shows up and down the coast. That took me way too long to get the joke you were making. I'm so <laughs> sorry. Uh, but uh, And he produces a show called Fringe Factor, which uh, we're actually in the middle of doing right now. We're doing these these live streams from your house, and yeah. you're running all the board and stuff. So it's, it's funny, because with a live stream, like, usually you're kind of performing for your phone or your computer or whatever, and you're kind of performing for the audience out there. But because you're running all of our lights and sound and stuff while we're doing these streams, I kind of feel like I've been performing for you and just you alone every night. So, like, when, when you laugh or, like, kind of wave at me a little bit, I'm like, yes! <laughs> it doesn't matter what chat is saying. Uh, but you don't travel nearly as much as Grant. I travel differently. Mm-hmm. Um, historically, I travel for work. Um, I have traveled in the past up to 90%, um, and I tend to travel somewhere between 25 and 50% of my work time. Uh, it's been a little bit changed, in the pa- obviously, with the pandemic, and then before that, I have had a back injury, mm-hmm. which made travel a lot more difficult. But um, I like to travel around 25 to 50% of my time for work, but I tend to go to different places. Mm-hmm. Uh, than he does. Um, but one of the benefits of my work is oftentimes, like, they'll be like, hey, we want you in Baltimore for the next nine weeks, and they owe me a trip home every weekend. Right. And so sometimes I don't go home, I go to the city where Grant is. Because as long as it's more or less price equivalent, and if it's a, if I'm stationed across the country, then I can pretty much go anywhere in the country. Um, or off, or I will stay the weekend mm-hmm. in Baltimore or Minneapolis or wherever I'm uh, supposed to be for work, and then I'll go see museums or shows or do my own thing. And so I get to kind of, that's kind of how I get to travel either on my own or oftentimes get to go to fringe festivals uh, because my work gets to fly me. My work gets to fly me. <laughs> get, get, well, and, and what is that work that you do? I am a cloud architect. Um, tending more toward cloud security architect these mm-hmm. days, but uh, basically I help big companies uh, secure their clouds and their applications in the cloud. Which that it's so amazing, just like even thinking about what talking about the cloud meant even ten years ago. And I only what, started working to the cloud in 2010, so. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you've been a part of this this last decade of. I got in pretty early. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I started with I. Um, was able to get in with AWS, with mm-hmm. Amazon Web Services, uh, in 2010, when they were really starting to commercialize their cloud. Right. It was Before that, it was kind of a, you know, the nerds knew about it, and if you were in a dot-com, you were putting your stuff out there. But if you were an enterprise, it was still very like, oh, I don't know about this whole right. cloud thing. Um, and so, like, almost all my customers at that point were apps and, mm-hmm. um, you know, new up-and-coming up venture-funded type companies. And now it's now I go out to almost strictly bent enterprises. So just, like, regular businesses. Big 500, Fortune 500, Fortune 1000, mm-hmm. uh, lots of – I've worked with banks, pharmaceuticals, insurance companies, um, law firms, that kind of thing. Uh, and then I also previously did sales engineering prior to the cloud stuff where I was selling, um, doing the technical side of sales for a software company. So they were trying to sell something to like the IT department or the operations department of some, you know, Home Depot or mm-hmm. Rite Aid or uh, insurance company or Citibank or whoever. And I would go in and demo the software and then have 
they install the software and help people run it in their environments till they said, yes, you're right. It is the best thing since sliced bread and we want to <laughs> buy it. And then my job was done. I just had to get to the technical yes. Right. And then my salesperson got to do all the crappy stuff dealing with pricing and lawyering and contracts and stuff. And I just got to go on to the next project. So this, this is a little bit of a, a curve of a question, but it's something I've been thinking about a lot because you, know, you know me well enough to know I'm, I'm sort of a semi-unplugged kind of person. Like yeah. I'm a little more analog. And like the cloud is the, the cloud as a general concept is kind of a freaky thing because it's like, where is it? You know, it's, it's on a server somewhere and we're seeing more and more of our our personal data, you know, not necessarily like um, embarrassing, you know, yeah. uh, personal facts, but just like, you know, like, like, for instance, all the research papers I've written uh, while I'm in school were all on Google Docs and then they're, you know, they're in my Google Drive. Right. Um, and I, you know, I've downloaded those and I have backups at home, but it's still like, I think more and more people are trusting this kind of nebulous architecture to hold their data and things like that. I don't want to just ask you if you think it's good, because I feel like that's a very broad question, but like, I have, what do you think of that? I have more, because specifically I work at AWS mm -hmm. and they're really the premier cloud by far the 800 pound gorilla in the room. They're the ones to beat. They're far more. They're far larger than anybody right. else. Have much bigger footprint, have much more services, etc. And they were they're very open internally about all their architecture and how all everything is done mm -hmm. um, for their customers and all the nitty gritty into like what actually holds things. And a lot of applications are built on their services. So things right. like Dropbox. Right. So for instance, the way that Dropbox works is it's built on top of another service called S3, which is mm -hmm. simple something storage, I don't know, um, scalable storage. And what the way that it works is that instead of you storing it like locally on one hard drive mm -hmm. or your USB stick or whatever you store it on, they copy it 11 different times to, sorry, that's not right, six different times mm -hmm. to three different regions of the country or the world. So if a hard drive dies, mm -hmm. no big deal. Right. If three hard drives die, no big fucking deal. <laughs> and the reality of when they have everybody on Dropbox and mm -hmm. every other company that runs all their stuff on Amazon, which you probably don't even realize because you're just going to the Citibank app or your local credit union right. app or, um, you know, place you store your photo, smug mug to store your photos or, or whatever, but they're still back-ended a lot of times mm -hmm. onto Amazon. And so when they have hundreds of millions of hard drives, the amount of hard drive failures you're going to have per day is upwards of hundreds. Right. At least. And that's so even a, hundred, a, a and, fraction of a percent. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so they're, you know, so they're swapping out hard drives all the time and you have no idea because they've copied it six other places. So it doesn't matter when they plug that new hard drive back in, it goes and copies all that mirrors, all that stuff again, mm -hmm. that was supposed to be in this location to that location. So one of the things that I would like, especially for storage, mm -hmm. is that storage is now really cheap. Right. Um, and it's really cheap for big companies. And while, you know, my husband has uh, all these shows that he records for people and we record them on these USB drives, but like they get treated like crap. They get thrown mm -hmm. into bags. They're, you know, they're solid state drives, so they're better than the spinning drives, but they're, they're still, you know, they're not as durable right. as they possibly could be in the world. Um, and, you know, you lose stuff. 
but I also have all I also have him uploading all that stuff to S3. Mm-hmm. So it's then getting copied six more times. And if if you if you know anything about like statistics or uh, percentages, the durability of that, the right. likelihood of losing that piece of information, is ninety nine point, and then you go eleven nines. Uh-huh. So 90.999, you know, right. et cetera, for 11 nines. So that's how much assurity you have that your hard drive, your stuff isn't going to go anywhere. So that's one aspect of the cloud is durability. I think durability is huge because we've had so many things that are like, you know, things go crap. You know, you, your Foursquare goes down or mm-hmm. Reddit goes down or whatever, and they're just not, they didn't build it properly right. to scale it properly across multiple regions. So if it fails, it just fails over to one another region. Um so uptime, durability, and then the last piece is security. Mm-hmm. So security is the hardest game in town, uh, and that's because it constantly changes. Now, you can go and, like Amazon did, talk to Western Digital and talk to Seagate and the hard drives makers and say, hey, we want better storage just for us. We want you right. guys to make us fancy hard drives that are just for us that do this, da-da-da-da, and not these other things. We don't care about those. And they do, because mm-hmm. they're Amazon. But... You can't go and talk to all the security geeks out there and say, hey, don't do that anymore. Right. So you're only as good on, on security as you were. You aren't even you aren't as good today as you were yesterday because more people have come uh, aware of more problems and ways and things to sneak. Right. So there's always going to be something that's insecure. Stuff's going to get leaked. Things are going to get hacked data is going to get out there. So you can do a couple different things. One is with the durability, mm-hmm. your your it doesn't go away. Right. That was the that was the one of the first things that, you know, it, when you get hacked, when you get a virus in your computer, all your stuff went away. Right. So you get the durability out there, you don't have to worry about your the hack violating that. Mm-hmm. The other piece is you should always encrypt all your stuff. Right. So if you have your own password to your devices, your own private key mm-hmm. to all of your files that are out there um, and they're spread out, even if somebody gets access to those, they're not going to get access to your private key. Mm-hmm. That's way harder. It's like getting your PIN, but there's no right. shortcut to like getting access to your cache directly right. because that PIN is really protecting the actual cache or your actual files. And so if you can... You know, follow some best practices as an individual, mm-hmm. um, then you're less likely to lose things. So things like Gmail already encrypted by right. default. Things like Facebook now after a couple hacks, and things like the security breaches that were happening in the U.S. about like Snowden right. and and the government reading our phones and various things like that. Um, Facebook, Amazon, or Facebook, um, and Apple. Mm-hmm. Just started decrypt, just started encrypting their whole phones or all the data they're storing for us. Right. So, you you know, there's a certain amount of yes, you have to trust them to encrypt the stuff. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of third party um, white hat hackers right. that are making sure that that's the case. Mm-hmm. So um, that's you know the the stuff that's more worrisome is not what the big tech companies are holding. It's all the insurance companies and all these old school dinosaur companies. What kind of day have? That's why your insurance records keep getting leaked. Right. Because they're they're insurance companies. They're not tech companies. Right. This is right. not their bailiwick. Yes, right. they're hiring people to come in and help them. But you know that's me. I'm mm-hmm. coming in and helping them. 
and I'm plugging these 47 holes and telling them here's some best practices, but I can't make them do it. There's only a certain, and, and the 47 holes I, I patched today doesn't count the four that got discovered today. Right. And, the, you know, OSs are, are imminently hackable. The Internet's mm-hmm. imminently hackable. You know, if they, the, the, our information, our insurance information wouldn't be, all our healthcare records wouldn't be out there uh, having, you know, all the different insurance companies be hacked if it was all encrypted. Right. But they didn't encrypt it. And they should have encrypted it. So, so that that's the kind of stuff I worry about more. Is, uh-huh. And and at this point, like, well, everyone's health records are already out there because they've hacked the seventeen right, major right. ones. So, so so it sounds to me like what you're saying that of more concern because you know it's like it's a pretty standard concern that it's like, well, Google has all my data. What is Google doing with it? Right. But that's another issue. It sounds like a, a, another concern is that there are. The, the majority of people who have our data, our insurance companies, our healthcare, et cetera, are sort of the, be- government. the government are behind the curve in terms of protecting our data. Yep. And that that is from from like a security standpoint, our data is actually more at risk with some of these sort of um, old institutions. Yeah, more antiquated institutions. Yes. Which speaking of old institutions, this is a perfect segue into <laughs> the other thing I wanted to talk yeah. to you about. And it, it, this actually informs a lot of my thinking about things like tech and, and sort of where the world is now, is that I'm a history major. I'm going to be graduating. I'm a history major. You're, yeah, you're a history major? I am. Well, uh, and I think the more history I've studied, the more it's like, wow, this seems familiar. Mm-hmm. And, and so sort of when I'm looking at some of the systems that are starting to be implemented now with things like cloud computing or... Um, digital storage technologies or whatever, it's all, it makes me think about how it connects back to the past. You know, like like you're talking about there's six copies of these files out there. And just like thinking about that in the context of something like the Library of Alexandria, where there's like one copy there's of everything. one copy. It's in one building. They centralized it because, yeah. you know, they were all, everyone had these little books in their little personal mm-hmm. libraries or in the monasteries or right. things. And then they collected them all, mm-hmm. which made them accessible, but vulnerable. Right. So you're collecting, Google is collecting all this information to make it more accessible, Mm -hmm. but not really to us. They're making it accessible to marketers. Right. So that's, so then it's vulnerable. So then the things that they're not, then the things that they're not encrypting uh, are accessible also to hackers. Mm -hmm. The vulnerability as privacy, as far as marketers, that's a whole, that's like, that's a different discussion. So, but yes, absolutely. There's there's precedent for all of this. So what area of history did you specialize in when you went to school? Um, first two years was Latin American history. Mm-hmm. And then my second two years um, was really a mishmash uh, of different things. Because uh, my la- my last, the college I went to, University of Washington for the last two years, didn't have a Latin American specialty in the history department. It was like a separate department. Mm-hmm. It was overly mm-hmm. complicated. So I just ended up getting a generic history degree, whereas at my first two colleges, Bryn Mawr College and Scripps College, I could just say Latin American history. And so my last two years were, you know, I took Native Americans in the law. I took African-American history, African-Americans uh, history in the U.S. Mm-hmm. I took a uh, seminar course just on Columbia during the Troubles, 
uh, lots of lots of little yeah. very very discreet type of uh, things. And then like a Washington State history course for you know in case I wanted randomly to be a teacher. And my very last course that I took at University of Washington, the very last quarter. They were mad that I hadn't taken a U.S. history survey course, even though I had taken all these other U.S. <laughs> history courses, but I hadn't taken a survey like level 100 U.S. history because my previous colleges didn't do survey courses because yeah. they were Ivy League level classes. Right. They, so they didn't do that. And so the, over remote, uh, which wasn't Zoom classes, it was just reading really, oh. uh, I did... Um, U.S. History 101. <laughs> we read Red Badge of Courage, which was like, oh I read God. that in junior year of high school. And even then, I think I read it in eighth grade. Like, it was it was very remedial. It was it was super frustrating for me because I, you know, I, I did two years of uh, Western like 10 years ago mm-hmm. and then decided I wanted to go back and finish my degree. And so went back in my early 30s and was like, I'm here to learn. I'm here to kick ass. I'm not here to screw around. Like the first quarter I was back, I took two, I took a 400 level course and a like 390 course mm-hmm. in history and was just like hit the ground running with those. But then the school made me take all these like, all those 101 seminars <laughs> of like, uh, you know, um, American multicultural experience or something, which was like a survey course of just like, you know, race relations and gender relations and things in US history, which parts of it were really interesting. But in the 101 courses I took, it's like you can almost skip the first three weeks of any 101 course because oh, yeah. they're like, so the entire universe was in a very dense state. Yeah. And it's, it's just like, okay, okay, but skip to the part where like... There's people and stuff's happening. Yeah. It's like finally like week three is like, so here's what we know about the first uh, American peoples prior to, you know, European contact. Right. And I was like, okay, here we go. <laughs> and even then, so much of it is taught from still the Western white man's expen- uh, yeah. perspective from textbooks that are 30 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then they're like, oh, right, we got to mention gender and some other people. So they'll bring in some printouts yeah. from, you know, semi-recently in the last 20 years. And they'll be like, okay, well, we're now's the part that I'm not comfortable with talking about, and we're going to briefly cover these things, and then we get back to the good old boring stuff, and we can talk about World War II. Yeah. So, uh, I, I, yeah. <laughs> a lot of that, I felt, was... I, I'm glad you brought that up, because, like, I'm all for engaging with with uh, with race and gender and, and social and class and, and inequalities of all types in history, because I think history is really good at that. Because you can you can instructively point to like, here's what happens to your society when you don't address these things. Right. Like you know Russia in 1917 it just mm-hmm. freaking exploded because basically all the oppressed peoples across the social spectrum were pissed. And the, the 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 revolution started because a bunch of women in a textiles factory were like, we can't feed our families. Mm-hmm. And it was like a women's strike first, and then other people sort of joined in from across Russia. Or likewise, the fall yeah. of communism uh, was super fast. Yeah. And so you can you can you can examine things like, like here is literally what happens to a society when it yeah. doesn't address these things. Um, but so often when that kind of stuff is implemented in a more traditional, like, history course. It's just like, what are you... T- oh, man. And it's painful, <laughs> and you don't really see the connections. I yeah. So when I've traveled, I read 
I read almost exclusively history, biographies, poli-sci type stuff just mm -hmm. for fun. And I would be reading on the plane. And this is, you know, back when, I, like I said, was traveling 90% of the time. So I was always, you know, sitting next to somebody who'd be like, what are you reading? And, uh, and it'd be some, you know, history biography or something release or some really narrow, like, right. oh, I just want to read about, you know, the Rape and End King, or I want to mm -hmm. read about, you know, something, a very specific incident, uh, you know, the Versailles Treaty. Right. And um, people would be like, oh, history. Yeah, that was really boring and painful. But then I would start proselytizing prof, prof, slash, uh, uh, you know, talking about why I was reading this book uh -huh. and why I found the book interesting and what I was learning from the book. And they're like, oh, wow, we were never taught history that way. Right. And I would talk about how it compared to today and the politics today or, you know, well, that's why China's mad at us today still or, you know, that comes into play with the negotiations with this country or, or what have you. And most people in growing up, especially especially the generation before ours, mm -hmm. um, I'm 44, um, were often taught history in high school and even in college as just survey courses and in high school almost exclusively taught by coaches, oftentimes by football coaches. They, at some point, the maker, the, the deciders that be, decided that history wasn't, you didn't have to specialize in it. You didn't right. have to have historians. You could have anybody teach history because you just had to teach the book. Right. And so they decided that coaches didn't have anything else to do during the day. So they could, t football coaches and basketball coaches mm -hmm. could teach history. And I know about this stuff more because my mother is also a history teacher mm -hmm. and had been for 40 years as well as a history major. And my sister is also a history major. Come from a, And my grandfather was a history major. So I come from a long line of historians. Um, and she would go to these history conferences that were primary, that were for history teachers mm -hmm. to talk about curriculum, to talk about new things and, you know, what have you. And they would be like 80% male coaches. Mm -hmm. And... Their level of they were lev they weren't history people. They didn't love history. Right. They didn't. And then it was then there was a few people like my mother who loved history and would you know I was exposed to it constantly growing up. The dinner table just you know things would come up and we would talk about these sort of issues. And I don't think the rest of the world was exposed to history in the same way. And instead, we're exposed to it as this dry memorization of text with no context into how it applied to today or how it really things happened. It was just like this happened and this happened and this happened instead of how one thing actually led to another mm -hmm. and how people affected that. Not just great white men, but how people, whether it's right. the Howard Zinn book or it's, you know, actually looking into, you know, why did this culturally occur? Mm -hmm. um, history just wasn't, it wasn't, I know it's changing, but it's, has not historically been taught well. But I think... And people don't enjoy it. Because when I was a kid, I was raised in a very conservative sort of Christian circles and was taught out of curriculum that my... I was homeschooled. Homes, yeah. My mom homeschooled ordered, curriculum is yeah, painful. Some curriculum from some some school in from Pensacola, Florida. Becca, I think it was the company. And I, I remember history, is, what you're describing, is it was very chronological... And so it was like names and dates, names and dates, names, dates, events, names, yep. dates, events, just, just ad infinitum. And 
something that I think is changing in history, and I'm definitely seeing it, I saw it at the college level, yeah. is like it's more thematic now. Yes. It's like, sure, events happen, but like it's... But why? And how does yeah. that connect to the other yeah. event that just happened? For or my, the events around the world that happened around some time? For my professors, it was less important to them that I knew the date that a particular revolution happened and more that I knew the mentalities of the people or the, the sort of the positions of the, of the belligerents. Absolutely. And I, I think that kind of thinking, it's a, it's so sad that that's not being taught at earlier levels because I think that learning to think about those things has actually informed how I interact with the, my own world now. It's a critical factor, you know, sort of like when, once you learn math, like actually learn math, you start to understand why credit cards are not a good idea. And economics. Yeah. And how it doesn't work and exactly all of those sort of things in the same way with you understanding modern politics the mm -hmm. news of the day mm -hmm. everything that's happening why are the people in you know what what is the palestinian israeli conflict about yeah um it, all of that it's you understand it because of history and if you don't teach history well in middle school and high school people don't take it in college and right now everything's so focused on stem 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 yeah that they don't. They go to college and they're like, oh well, I gotta make the money, so I gotta go to a business degree or a tech degree or whatever. And they might take a survey course, which would be a boring ass survey course, but they won't actually go and take African American women in the U.S. from the 1940s right. to the 1980s as a course because that's a 300 level course, and unless you're a history major, you don't have time for that. Right. And so I took all these wonderfully interesting courses and incorporated like medical history and the law and technology and things into that and labor history and mm -hmm. all kinds of stuff. But that's 400 level, right. 300 level courses, not the survey stuff. And so then you graduate and you now have read a couple textbooks and you're dropped into the world and made a president and you know no history <laughs> and you repeat mistakes yeah. that people have made for centuries because you know nothing of the past. Well, I can't think of a better place to to wrap this up. That was that was just mm, sealed it with a bow and said it better than I could. That was delightful. Thank you. Uh, before you go though, yes, uh, I always ask people if they have any recommendations. Like James Lipton. For, yeah, you know, yeah. What, uh, what's your favorite yeah. sound? Can we speak to? <laughs> Man, he's so funny. I. I remember a thing came out a couple of years ago where someone was like, no one, none of the kids on Inside the Actor's Studio has ever ended up famous. And then Bradley Cooper was like, uh, and oh, like really? tweeted a photo of himself, like sitting in the background. It's like little baby Bradley Cooper, Aww. like eating up everything James Lipton is saying to That's like awesome. Marlon Brando or whoever. Yeah. It's so great. That's fantastic. Uh, I always ask my guests for recommendations because I, I try to talk to people from all different walks of life and, and... It could be music, it could be books, whatever. I mean, yeah. your historian is probably books. Um, but sometimes there's just, you know, like, what would you recommend for people to read as a historian that you're sure. like, this is like, this will... So I, uh, a couple books mm -hmm. that um, I have recommended to others that they have said, wow, I've never read anything like this, a history book like right. this, that's entertaining, that it's like a novel or like... Uh, you know, so it's like a movie that mm -hmm. I, you know, and I think a lot of people think history, again, is only written like their textbooks. Right. And they don't pick up that book, 
Mm-hmm. Or if they do, they'll pick up something that, like, like the Hamilton biography. Right. That is, you know, it's a thousand pages long, and it covers all this time and space. I say, I say if you're interested in trying to develop your interest in history, is pick up something that is somewhat discreet. Mm-hmm. That is, um, in the mathematical sense, as far as it is, it is limited in scope. Mm-hmm. It doesn't cover every. You don't read a biography of Margaret Thatcher. Read right. about the Falkland Islands incidents during Margaret Thatcher's period. Right. You can learn a lot about the personality, about ways that she acted, about the thoughts of the day, just from reading one particular incident, mm-hmm. without having to know everything in the world. So a couple a couple books. One is King Leopold's Ghost. Mm-hmm. It is a book about the co- about the colonization of the Congo, mm-hmm. um, and it's specifically during the last king, King Leopold, right. and the legacy that he left behind in the Congo, and like what kind of happened when they declared their independence, and you know it's but it's still fairly limited scope. Um, but it, it, it really gives you a perspective on, okay, so these people did not want to be ruled by the Belgians anymore, and they were massively abused, and, and everybody agrees that, you know, colonization, bad. Right. Okay, but how do you rebuild a society after that? Right. Um, and, and specifically, I try, to, I try personally to read about a lot of things that, um, that I've never heard about. Mm-hmm. Because we weren't taught in school, they occurred after World War II. Right. Um, they they were things that didn't happen in the U.S. or Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I often search for those type of books. But you know, that's that's just I often look for the more obscure. Right. Um, other book is A Desert Queen, mm-hmm. which is about this fascinating woman. She was an aristocratic white woman in Europe and really bored and didn't wa- and didn't want to do the like hang out and embroider and look for a suitor mm-hmm. thing. And so she moved to the Middle East and she just started hanging out with like the Bedouins and with various tribes and getting to know folks in uh, Persia, essentially. Mm -hmm. And she worked with um, uh, the the guy from, what's his name? not Chariots of Fire, uh, Lawrence of Arabia. Oh, T.E. Lawrence. Thank you. Yeah. She worked with T.E. Lawrence um, and the Brits and actually helped manage those um, alliances mm-hmm. during the, uh, World War II as one, two, forgetting. Uh, I think it was World War One. One And helped to um, actually draw the lines of the maps today and explain why the Brits were actually screwing that up right. in certain ways by drawing the maps in that way, which really helps you understand why the hell the Middle East is so convoluted today. Yeah. And so it's a great, you know, kick-ass lady story. Uh-huh. It's an interesting history story. And, you know, no, having this background to figure out, like, oh, that's why Syria hates blah, blah, blah. Right, like, right. And why there's these weird little kingdoms and various things. So it's an interesting, you know, yeah. thing like that. Reading about that history, it's like the the I think it's the kingdom of Oman. One of the kingdoms there is just because it was like a, there was a thing, and then it was like this guy had three sons. They're like, well, you yep. have to give something to the third son. They're like, well, f- fuck it, like give him that. Right. And it was just like it was an area nobody. It was like completely desert, like nothing. Yep. Bad, but he was like, oh well, I'm king here. And, and now it's like Kuwait or something. Yeah. yeah. That's that's basically yeah. Yeah. 
and, you know, and the Brits owed favors to different folks from the war. Mm-hmm. And so they got larger chunks than some of the other tribes who maybe had more people or had more right. historical rights to a territory. Uh, you know, she disagreed significantly mm-hmm. with how it was broken up, but she really tried right. to... Um, she tried to work within the system to make it as best as it could be. And it still didn't work, but <laughs> she tried. She tried. Um, so it's, but it's, 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 you know, and, and she's a woman. So they weren't, mm-hmm. they were sort of not listening to her and, and that sort of thing. Um, but it was sort of not, they were you know, often not listening to her, but, right. uh, but it's a fascinating story. Um, and women adventurers are, are, are somewhat rare. Oh yeah. And the, when, especially, um, I feel like, sort of pre-mid-20th century, they're often fascinating in, in more ways than going out and doing the thing. Like, right. I mean, there's a, a, more recently, there's a lot of narratives of, like, women adventurers going and doing sure. outdoor, um, outdoorsy things or whatever, and it's, they're, they're really, they're, they're interesting, but, like, when you hear about this British aristocrat who's like, no, I'm going to leave, like, this life of comfort and privilege and go over here and then not just, like, go change my life, live somewhere else, but, like, actively become a participant in the geopolitics of the region right. and then like work to try to be a bridge like that's it's just so fascinating well and i i think personally the you know there's the narrative of people going off and doing you know pacific trail or doing something naturey mm-hmm. um on their own and maybe very physically uh, exhausting and and there's a lot of endurance and 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 that's a story right but then there's also the other side of like I'm just going to drop myself in this culture that I've never been in. Mm -hmm. And I don't have a guide. I don't have a person. I'm just going to go do it. And I'm not going in as a white savior. I'm not going in as a missionary. I'm going in to learn about this and, um, and, and try to, you know, live their way, not Mm -hmm. bring my way and demand that they treat me like this or what have you. Um, I mean, she was definitely not willing to be treated as a woman in a traditional Muslim society. Mm-hmm. She wanted to be treated more as a man in that society. Um, but uh, other than that, there wasn't a whole lot that kind of stood out of like, well, I still demand that they do this and da 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 da. You know, I need to have my parties and my tea and my disc. You know, a lot of the colonials right. would go to those countries, go to India or Kenya or wherever, and then live the British lifestyle Mm -hmm. there and it was just hotter (laughs) (laughs) and that was the only difference that they uh, allowed themselves but uh, you know the ones that are more immersive and actually living within the culture that's much more fascinating to me well cool those are super good recommendations thank you absolutely uh, thanks for being here. And you, yeah, you're the thanks first. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> you're the, well, I'm glad you got into my van. You know, uh, well, it was a little sketchy. Yeah. Well, I did give you the big chair, so. <laughs> Here's something I've been mulling. Why not do it wrong the first time? It is not often that I'm asked for creative advice. Even less often is my input appreciated. I do not think that I'm alone in this regard. And indeed. I would be willing to bet that very few people feel their advice will be heeded as thoroughly as they would like. And yet, when I talked about this particular piece of my creative process with an astrophysicist friend of mine recently, I was startled by the enthusiasm of her reaction. Generally, if I am caught saying something particularly clever, I try to write it down. Since that conversation, I've been thinking more about this particular mentality in my creative process, and I thought I would share it with all of you. Perhaps you will get some use out of it, perhaps not. 
Speaking of writing things down, I'm always intrigued to read people's last recorded words. Some, of course, are exceedingly witty, such as Oscar Wilde's reported, Either this wallpaper goes, or I do. Many are melancholy, but I think my favorite are those attributed to Pancho Villa, who allegedly said, Don't let it end like this. Tell them I said something important. I cannot say if that is true or not, but it tickles me to no end. There is so much personality and humanity encapsulated in those 12 words. But I digress. The crucial first step of my creative process is this. I do it wrong, sometimes intentionally. I wholeheartedly run full speed at doing it wrong the first time. Then I fix it. Let me start with a small, simple example. Say the creative process I am trying to accomplish is to write a single, verifiable sentence about Joseph Stalin. The me in this example does not know much about Stalin, other than the fact that he was a world leader at some point. Uh, by the way, the me in this example did not study Russian history. So I sit down at my yellow legal pad, grab my free ballpoint pen from Wacom Educational Credit Union, and I write, Joseph Stalin was the king of Alaska from 1845 to 1988. Now, Right away, I'm sure you picked up on a few things wrong with that sentence. However, in the most general sense, much of the information is pretty close to correct. I mean, you know, aside from the fact that he reigned for a remarkable 143 years. Now, it becomes a matter of fixing it. A quick round of duck-duck-going reveals that Stalin was actually the, quote, General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, unquote, from 1927 to 1952. Armed with this new information, we can now edit the sentence to say something like, Joseph Stalin ruled the Soviet Union from 1927 to 1952. This is much better. The sentence is correct, and it would stand up to most scrutiny. My historian hat is starting to chafe a bit, though, because of the word ruled, as it does not quite reflect the power dynamics at play within the communist hierarchy from time to time. However, if you are looking for a short, pithy sentence that communicates the most important pieces of information... There it is. Mission accomplished. So what was accomplished by writing a crap sentence? Several things. First, by writing anything, we have overcome the blank page. Second, by writing a bad sentence that structurally has the kind of information we want, it saves us an incredible amount of time when we finally go seek out the correct information. Third, it eliminates distractions that could arise if I were to go web searching Stalin before I began writing. Can you imagine the potential rabbit holes of information I would end up finding if I just bing Joseph Stalin. <laughs> bing Joseph Stalin. <laughs> of course, if you're producing a piece of academic writing, you usually have already done quite a bit of research on the given topic, so the important sentences will probably be less basic. But I digress. The final benefit of this approach is that it creates an environment of revision rather than creation out of whole cloth. Think about that last benefit for a moment and how much easier it is. We have all had the experience of watching a film, hearing a story, or listening to a traditional Italian opera, and having our own mind make up ideas of what's coming next, or how it should end. To be sure, this desire to, quote, crack the code, unquote, can get out of hand. One need only look at the behavior of various internet fandoms toward their favorite, supposedly favorite, creators, whose stories did not end the way the predictive fans had decided they should. The surprise inherent in being proved right, or more often wrong, is a big part of what makes art so compelling. However, this desire has far deeper consequences than how it affects your feelings toward the Daniels or the Davids of the world. 
This desire to figure things out faster than everyone else is a very important human survival trait. For millennia, it has driven us to try to improve the world around us, for ourselves and our communities. Human beings naturally see problems and want to fix them. I, I cannot think of a friend of mine who has never expressed satisfaction upon solving a problem. Be it the way they turn a couple of cinder blocks into a shelf or the application of a new kind of orbital insertion algorithm to finally get the Kerbal Space Program into orbit. We like to fix things. So why not give yourself a broken version of what you're already trying to do? Then you can fix it. Another example. I recently finished writing a song, which will appear on my next album. The chorus is four lines long. The first, second, and fourth lines all repeat the same phrase, with the third line being different. <laughs> what can I say? I was raised at the feet of Fatboy Slim. I wanted to get that third line absolutely right because of how it fits into the rest of the song structurally. The chord structure had already been established, and the third line would include a particular melodic shift that would give the words extra impact, so the line had to be perfect. As I was writing along in the song, I got to that line and hit a speed bump. Could not think of anything. Think back to earlier when I almost went on a tangent about the use of the word ruled to denote Stalin's exact role in the Soviet Union, and you know how distracting it can be if you're just spending time going to the thesaurus and trying to find absolutely the perfect word, you know, like presided over, led, whatever. It, it, it can slow you down so much. So at this point, one of two things could happen. I could stop and spend the rest of my scheduled songwriting time for the day hitting my head against the wall trying to find an exact perfect wording, or I could fill in something passable that fit the rhythm I was going for and then carry on with the song. I chose the latter option and had the song entirely finished except for that line by the end of the allotted time for songwriting for that workday. Over the course of the next couple days, I was able to think about the line in spare moments. I mumbled the chorus to myself while cooking dinner. I tinkered with it as I gargle sang in the shower. Finally, it came to me. I was halfway through a 10-mile run, so I stopped for a moment, wrote it down, and then finished my run. Since I did not have time scheduled that day for songwriting, I had to wait until the next day to work on it. By the time I sat down to work on the song again, I looked at the perfect line I had found while running and saw that it needed a small change. This is pretty standard for me. Folks have often noticed that the version of a song that I sing in live shows has numerous small tweaks when compared to the album version. The album version is a snapshot in time of something that I consider to be a constantly evolving work of art. Often I'll sing a song live a bunch of times and change it up so much that I might re-record it again, or I might stop playing it. You know, you sort of, especially when you do things that have sing-along components and audience participation, it really comes down to how it reacts when you share it with an audience. And sometimes songs that I really believe in a lot don't quite work and they never really find the audience and they just don't connect. And, you know, I, I don't do them as much. Looking at you, ride, ride, ride till I die. Anyway, <clears throat> Years ago, I watched a documentary on the restoration of the Star Wars trilogy to present the 20th anniversary special editions, which was almost 20 years ago. No, over 20 years ago. Shit. Wow. <clears throat> At some point in the documentary, George Lucas says, films are never completed. They're just abandoned. 
or something to that effect. Although the quality of the choices he made when revisiting the Star Wars trilogy can be, and often is, debated, I don't think anyone should fault him for the impulse behind that statement. At a certain point, you just have to finish something. We all know artists who are constantly working on something that they have never and probably will never release. I have a friend who makes films. His current average turnaround is something like eight years. The, the films are good, but I sometimes wonder if he would be better served by making more of them and faster. For instance, in contrast to my glacial cinematic compadre, another friend of mine, a songwriter, once said to me, you have to write a hundred bad songs before you can write one good one. That sounds a bit extreme to me, but so does taking nearly a decade to finish something that might have been accomplished in a fifth of that time. David Bales and Ted Orland talk about this very dichotomy in their 2001 book, Art and Fear. A ceramics teacher divided his students into two groups. One was told they would be graded at the end of the quarter by the quality of a single pot. The second group was instructed to make as many pots as possible. They would be graded on the combined weight of all the pots that they produced. Guess which group made the best pots? Mm -hmm. The one pot student spent so much time and energy contemplating what made the best pot that they missed the forest for the trees. Or maybe the... Pot? Sorry, it's a bad metaphor. Meanwhile, their colleagues in the volume group happily churned out pots, gaining valuable experience in all kinds of ancillary skills along the way, and by the end of the quarter were actually making far superior pots. Getting back to my friends, neither of them produces bad art. On the contrary, I quite like the things they both make, but I think they both demonstrate two polar extremes in mentality. If you constantly tinker with something, trying to make it perfect, you run the risk of no longer being the person who wanted to make that thing in the first place. Think about who you were eight years ago. On the other hand, treating creativity like something you just pop out and see what sticks might just make you create a bunch of nonsense without the benefit of revision. As a fringe producer friend of mine from Australia likes to say, Better done than perfect, you can't. <clears throat> Personally, I advocate for a kind of fusion between the two ideas. Happily churn out a pile of crappy pots or bad songs or whatever, but then go back and tinker with them. Give yourself a bit of distance from the original draft, and then revise. But, at some point, preferably sooner than you think is wise, let it go. Nobody is stopping you from revising it more, even after that. Granted, fans might complain, as they did to George, but honestly, I think this process works best when you can do it alone for a while and then let it go. This advice is mostly aimed at helping you overcome the initial difficulty of the blank canvas, or page, or wall requiring your tag. Just do it crappy first, and then fix it later. Just remember to fix it. I hope that helps. If not, maybe I'll rewrite these thoughts a year from now and do the Strangely Duisburg special edition of the... Anyway, I need more coffee. Song of the Week. This is the song I was talking about in the last segment. This is a new song of mine called Beautiful Nonsense. I'm not 100% happy with this, and I was having a bad vocal day when I recorded it, but I do really like where it's at, and depending on how the instrumentation goes, it might end up on the album, it might not. At the very least, I'm going to play this at some big live shows whenever festivals start happening again. So, yeah, I, I hope you enjoy this <laughs> work in progress version of beautiful nonsense.
My friends, we stand at the end of the line. A few feet from here, the tracks end in empty space. If I've learned one thing in this past year, it's that no one knows what's coming up. So if this is my last show, hell, it better rock. Nonsense we're making tonight. What beautiful nonsense we are making tonight. Stay awake for one more song, dance till the morning light. What beautiful nonsense we are making tonight. Never felt more present than I do now. If perfection exists, it is this day. And yet beyond that velvet black, something's calling me. So let's slip the bonds of earth and fly away. What beautiful nonsense we are making tonight. What beautiful nonsense we are making tonight. Stay awake for one more song, dance till the morning light. What beautiful nonsense we are making tonight. could never capture what happened tonight. I only pray you remember it in your dreams. Take this joy and carry it with you out into our broken world. And the dam of love will burst apart at the seams. Beautiful nonsense we're making tonight. What beautiful nonsense we are making tonight. Stay awake for one more song, dance till the morning light. What beautiful nonsense we are making tonight. Here singing with me I can't match that gift No matter how I try The only way I can thank you enough Is to push it even farther Put my life on the line And take to the sky what beautiful nonsense we are making tonight. 
What beautiful nonsense we are making tonight. Stay awake for one more song. Dance till the morning light. What beautiful nonsense we are making. Beautiful nonsense we are making. What beautiful nonsense we are making tonight. What beautiful nonsense we are making tonight. What beautiful nonsense we are making tonight. Stay awake for one more song. Dance till the morning light. What beautiful nonsense we are making tonight. Mailbag. I'm going to be back in Bellingham by the end of next week, so send me some stuff in the mail. My address is strangely at 1000 Harris Avenue, Bellingham, Washington, 98225. I look forward to hearing from you. Well, that about does it for this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. I hope you folks had as much fun listening to this as I did recording in it. Strangely and Friends, the podcast is produced in a secret, undisclosed location in a closet by me, Strangely Deucebark. This podcast is made possible by my incredible supporters on Patreon, including my executive producer patrons, Kim Truitt and Tina Jones. You can check out patreon.com strangely to find out how you can help me make more of this podcast. As a special thank you to Patreon supporters, I've started posting the scripts for these episodes so you can see which bits of weirdness were intentional and what just happened. I didn't throw him. <laughs> he jumped. He jumped. <laughs>